Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and has just been released. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource, or order from your favorite online retailer. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. I saw a cartoon the other day in which a fellow asked his wife, What's bothering you? She replied, Which part of everything do you want to know about? Sometimes it feels like everything is bothering us and everything about everything. We become overwhelmed with life. At the heart of our chaos, there is often one problem or heartache around which everything else is whirling. The title of this series of podcasts is What's Bothering You? And here's my proposition. Imagine that the Trinity, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, imagine they descended in a flash of glory to literally surround you in real time as you stood in your bedroom or living room or at a private spot outside. What if they handed you a 3 by 5 card and a Sharpie and said, What's bothering you? We already know all about it, but we want you to identify it in just a sentence or two. Suppose you thought a few moments and filled out the card and handed it back. What if each member of the Trinity spoke to you in turn, telling you what to do about your issue? What would they say? I don't want to make light of the great mysteries of the faith, and I'm not speaking as a theology professor would. I know the Trinity is a holy reality, and I don't want to tamper with Scripture in a careless way, but I simply want to make this real to you, and I believe we can visualize this without doing violence to the Bible. So what would the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit say to you about your worries? Let's begin with God the Father. We know exactly what He would say because we have His words recorded for us in advance in Psalm 37. This is the voice of the Lord Jehovah Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let's read the first eight verses of this wonderful psalm, and if you're able to have an open Bible with you, then all the better. Psalm number 37. Do not fret. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret, because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Three times in this psalm, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob commands us, do not fret. You and I should take this personally. 
Imagine hearing as if audibly the Lord looking at the problem scribbled on your card, speaking your name, and saying, well, do not fret about this. That seems impossible, doesn't it? That we could live without fretting our way through life. Maybe you're battling a severe illness, disease, or disability. Maybe you're facing a crisis, a marriage crisis, a financial crisis, a family crisis. How can we keep from fretting? As I prepared this message, a tornado struck our city, and I've been driving up and down the streets where homes have been damaged and destroyed. Trees and power lines down, debris scattered everywhere. How can we keep from fretting as we go through the uncertainties of life? Well, in these eight verses, there are eight replacements or divine substitutions for fretting. We can't just stop fretting. We have to push aside the fretting and the fearfulness by doing what the Lord tells us here. As we work our way through this wonderful paragraph in the Bible, we find eight principles that reduce our overwhelming propensity to fret. We have to displace fretfulness with faithfulness. So, the first instruction is in verse 3. It says, Trust. Look at Psalm 37 again. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord. In the context here, the Lord seems particularly keen on speaking into our fears when we are being intimidated by non-believers or by those who don't understand us because they do not understand our God, and they probably don't want to understand Him. That's the context. Remember, the Jewish settlers who were pressing into the promised lands were being harassed and tormented by truly evil, depraved people who resented them. Maybe you have someone in your life who resents or troubles you. Or maybe you're concerned about a leader who is using his or her leadership or authority to promote a troubling agenda. Psalm 37 says, in effect, those people are problems, but they are not permanent problems, and they are not going to do permanent damage. You may feel like they're going to torment you forever, but they shall soon be cut down like a blade of grass when the lawnmower passes over it. But what do we do while we're waiting for the lawnmower of God's justice to arrive? We trust Him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord. I've learned a lot as I've studied this passage. I was surprised, for example, by the way the word trust appears in the Bible. Now, in one sense, every generation of humanity has included people who have placed their faith in the Lord during times of trouble. In the book of Hebrews, there is one full chapter. We call it the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, devoted to those who walked by faith, and the ones listed in the chapter were characters in the early books of the Bible. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, and by faith Moses, and so forth. But the specific word trust does not really appear in Scripture until David, the author of this psalm, 37, showed up and started using it. I don't want to make more of this than I should, but a look at the concordance, which is a 
book that lists all the words of the Bible and how they occur, surprise me. For example, in the New King James Version, which I'm using for this portion of our study, the word trust does not appear a single time in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. The one and only time it appears is in Deuteronomy, and that is warning people against trusting in their own fortifications. In the first five books of the Bible, there is no use of this word trust in the sense that David is using it in Psalm 37. Nor does this word show up in Joshua. And the only appearance in the next book, Judges, is about someone who didn't trust the Israelites. The next time the word trust occurs in the Bible is in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, in which the writer speaks of the God of my strength in whom I trust. And who do you suppose it was that wrote those words? It was David, King David, in one of his early songs. And after that, David took this word trust and he popularized it using it over and over and over again. He is the one who began using, he coined and began using the phrase, trust in the Lord. In other words, when you study this, it feels like David did with the word trust what Martin Luther did with the concept of justification by grace through faith. The idea already existed, but he stated it and popularized it for the masses of people and encouraged them in its direction. I've come to realize that David was a brilliant student of the scriptures that he had in his possession. I don't know where or how he acquired such a keen knowledge. Perhaps it was from his mother. He speaks about that on one occasion, or his father, or perhaps he got a lot from Samuel, or maybe he learned things from his friend Jonathan. I'm sure that all of those sources played a role, but David himself combined a brilliant intellect with an extraordinary faith. Remember how he took on Goliath as a teenager? The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. David knew the contents of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and of course Genesis. These first five books of the Bible, he knew them inside out, and he knew how to think through the concepts contained in them and how to meditate on these books. He knew Joshua and Judges and whatever books had been written before he showed up, and he absorbed the truths, the commandments, and the promises that God had given in these scriptures, and they all merged together in his brilliant mind and heart. When you read his Psalms, it's as though David took the promises given to Abraham and the commandments given by Moses, he drenched them, as it were, with the gasoline of the Holy Spirit and struck a match to them. They exploded into the praise and power and fire and light of the book of Psalms, the greatest book in the history of worship. I've always thought of David as a shepherd boy he became the king of Israel and as a musician who wrote many of the Psalms, but I had never before considered him as one of the most remarkable theologians and Bible teachers of the ages. Somehow this simple observation about how he used the word trust has opened me to that side of his work. He was the St. Augustine, the Martin Luther, the C.S. Lewis of his time. I had never thought of David like that until I noticed how he used the word trust 
in a way that exceeded any and all who came before him. Here's the way David put it in some of his psalms. The number of references is too many to recount, but I'll give you three or four of them. He said, those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 9. But I trust in your unfailing love. Psalm 13. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Show me your ways. Psalm 25. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. Psalm 28. I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. Psalm 52. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 56. And here in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord. No one in the history of Scripture had ever spoken like that or turned trust into such a rugged and rigorous verb. What then did David mean when he told us to trust the Lord? Trusting God does not mean that you expect everything to turn out exactly as you wish. It means you expect God to turn out everything exactly as He wishes, turning it for your good in the process. Trust is the mental determination to emphasize God's promises as great as they are over your problems as great as they seem. We all face times in our lives when all we can do is to trust God and push forward. I'm an introvert in my personality, and when I was in junior high school, I was never at ease in school. But my worst moments involved giving oral reports in class. My stage fright was deep and real and really painful. And when I had to read a report in front of the class, I suffered humiliating panic attacks. On one occasion, my teacher actually stood beside me to reassure me and to catch me if I fainted. Back then, we didn't know the term panic attack, and no one ever explained what was happening to me. Now I realize that I've been subject to panic attacks all my life, but as an eighth grader, it was paralyzing, and I didn't understand it. There was one other issue at play, too. I wanted somehow to be a preacher, a pastor, or a Bible teacher, and all of those required speaking in front of people, and I just could not do that. Sometimes I would be asked to read scripture for an event or for some group at church. One night, I believe by then I was in high school, I found myself in a room standing behind a large podium trying to read a passage of scripture for a group of maybe 30 or 40 people. My only assignment that night was to read the passage of scripture, but my panic attack came full force. I'll never forget this moment. My lungs compressed, my breathing was shallow, my body was sweating, my brain felt lightheaded, my hands, in fact, my whole body was trembling. And while I was trying to get one word out after the other, as I read through some portion of Scripture, a voice was going through my mind over and over again, What are you doing up here? What are you doing up here? How did you get yourself into this? What are you doing up here? And I remember this clearly. My math kept going precariously 
from word to word and from verse to verse, but in my mind, I just stopped and mentally answered myself. I don't think I paused in my reading, but my mind was working on another level, and when the question, what are you doing up here, came, as it was coming up like a broken record, I just mentally said to myself in frustration, I'm reading the Bible, now shut up. I didn't say that out loud, but I distinctly remember saying that in my mind to myself, and somehow at that moment, my panic eased off and my stage fright was conquered. It was like bursting through a barrier. I really don't know how to explain it to this day, but in all of the years since, 50 years of preaching and teaching, I've never had a significant return of this stage fright. There have been a few occasions when I felt nervous, when it was an uncertain or a hostile environment or a very tense moment, but for the most part, I've been more at ease in front of a thousand people than in front of five. I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that was the moment when I chose to trust the faithfulness of God over the fearfulness that I was feeling. I had been fretting. Fear and fretting come in so many different forms, but I had been badly fretting, and now I just decided I was going to listen to the Word of God even as I read it to myself. At some point, we have to ask ourselves, why am I so fearful? I have God's Word here in front of me. Sometimes you have to tell the fretting mind that is whispering to you. You have to tell that fretting mind, shut up already. I have God's Word. I believe that is something of what it means to trust the Lord. But the passage doesn't stop there. There is a second step. Let's read it again. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Why would David say that? Trust in the Lord and do good. Have you ever heard of faith and works? Works follows faith. Trust in the Lord and do good. When we trust the Lord with our fears, we take the focus off of our obsessions and we get busy serving Him with the next thing we can think to do. I learned something about this from a book by Elizabeth Elliot, the great missionary writer. She wrote that whenever she was overwhelmed with worry, it helped her to stay busy. Anxiety can be paralyzing, and it can bring inertia and depression. I know what it's like to curl up into a painful, pathetic bundle. I've done that before. But Elizabeth said that whenever she was beset by anxiety, she would mop the floor, wash the dishes, weed the garden, anything to stay occupied. Just do the next thing, she said, and somehow it seems to help. One day during my wife's final illness with the house filled with people, I became obsessed with putting coasters under all of the glasses and cups and water bottles all over the house. I worried about making sure the garbage was taken out. In retrospect, it was a way of expanding nervous energy so that I wouldn't internalize it. In some way, psychologists tell us that taking a good brisk walk or taking a run will give us a needed rush of endorphins that will combat our stress. 
A recent report from Harvard reports that one in five Americans over the age of 18 and one in three teenagers are battling a chronic anxiety disorder, and that people with anxiety tend to be more sedentary and to get less exercise. That's ironic, said the report, because lacing up your sneakers and getting out and moving may be the best single non-medical solution we have for preventing and treating anxiety. The report said that doing something, engaging in a physical activity, diverts us from the very things we are anxious about, and moving our bodies decreases our muscle tension and changes in our brain chemistry. Now, when David said, trust in the Lord and do good, he was ahead of his time, and he obviously meant more than just getting exercise. He meant to get busy doing good for someone else. Do something for the Lord. Do the next thing that God leads you to do. One translation of the Bible says, trust in the Lord and do a good deed. Trust in the Lord and be kind to others. This isn't easy, but I've seen it in action this week when the tornado struck Nashville. Streets near my house were ravaged, including my daughter's house, which was damaged by fallen trees. But there were people in every yard waving to each other, delivering food, showing up with chainsaws, passing out water, taking out trash, and doing good. Even people who lost everything were busy with their own disasters, but they were also helping their neighbors. In times of stress, we have to trust in the Lord and stay busy doing good. There's a third thing here. The third way to displace fretting is to feed on God's faithfulness. Let's read these initial verses again. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Literally, as you are dwelling in the land, Feed on his faithfulness. Now remember my theory. David was writing to new settlers in new areas of the promised land which he and his armies had occupied. These new settlers had a lot to worry about. Their neighbors were hostile and carving out a new life isn't easy. But David said, don't fret. Trust in the Lord. Stay busy and feed on his faithfulness. The latter is a vivid phrase. To feed on something is to devour it, to chew it up, to swallow it, to get it inside of you, to digest it, to fill yourself with it, to internalize with it. We're to feed on God's faithfulness. Our mental and spiritual diet should be rich in material about the person of God and about his infinite faithfulness. When we speak of God's faithfulness, we mean that he will honor every word and fulfill every promise he has ever made. Not a syllable of the smallest line will be broken. God will faithfully keep his word because he is faithful in his essence. Were he capable of lying or of failing, he would not or could not be God. By his very nature, God is unchanging and he is infinitely dependable. The Bible tells us 66 times that God is faithful. I've studied this word through the Bible, and I found 66 explicit times when the word faithful and faithfulness are used to describe our Lord. 
But of course, the entire Bible, cover to cover, is as full of God's faithfulness as a saturated sponge is full of water. It drips from every page, and you can soak up its uplifting message, Great is His Faithfulness. Reverend Joseph G. Ransford was an Irish pastor of yesteryear. In the 1800s, he wrote a book about the faithfulness of God. Though it's been long out of print, it's well worth reading. One chapter was devoted to God's faithfulness to his promises, which is at the heart of his integrity and trustworthiness. Rainsford called God the promiser par excellence. And every promise, he said, is guaranteed by the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. He said, quote, From Jesus every promise is derived, in Jesus every promise has its center. And he went on to say, The steadfastness of God's promises are built on four great pillars. Number one, God's holiness which will not allow him to deceive us. Number two, God's goodness, which will not allow him to forget us. Number three, God's truth, which will not allow him to change. And number four, God's power, which will not allow him to fail. Well, we'll pick up our study of this next week. But for now, whatever it is that you are worried about, whatever is bothering you, Listen to the voice of your Heavenly Father who says, Do not fret. Trust me. Stay busy. And feed on my faithfulness. For next time, why not take a moment every day to read Psalm 37. I'm glad you've tuned into this podcast. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. Edited by Elijah Rowe. Music by Jordan Davis. For more information and resources, including my new book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.